Hello and welcome to a series of short podcasts, Inquests and Inquiries, What Do You Need to Know? These podcasts are being released by Osborne Clark in the course of 2023's Health and Safety Week. And the aim is to get an overview of the inquest and inquiry process, how you might find yourself involved in one, and what to expect from it. My name is Alice Savington, and I'm a regulatory disputes lawyer here at Osborne Clark with a particular focus on health and safety and global compliance. And my work includes advising clients in the course of inquests and crisis-related issues. In each session of this series, I'll be joined by a different guest and we'll take a look at their experience of inquests and inquiries, what works well if you're involved in one, and how you might be drawn into the inquest or inquiry process. To kick off our podcast series, I'm joined by James Leonard Casey of Outer Temple Chambers. James, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Pleasure. Before we get into the topic of inquests, would you mind telling our listeners a bit about yourself and your experience with inquests? So I started out life doing nothing but pure, purely criminal work, but about 15 years or so ago, I changed chambers and, and now specialise predominantly in health and safety, environmental law, as well as disciplinary and regulatory. I, I was appointed silk last year. Um, and I've also been doing that within that practice, very substantial inquests and public inquiries, including Lacknell House, which is a fire-related one, and the Grenfell Tower Public Inquiry over the course of the last 15 years or so. Fantastic. I expect we'll have plenty to talk about today. Indeed. Um, so we'll be going back to basics in this first episode and looking at an introduction to inquests. And so I suppose we should probably start with, what's the point of an inquest? Well, the, the starting point in relation to inquests is that they are a fact-finding exercise. And the idea is that they're not really about blame or liability they're not Mm. as most people would understand it a civil or a criminal trial Mm -hmm. but it is worth bearing in mind that there is an elephant in the room uh, and it's worth being aware of this in advance because in my view a a view formed over many years of doing these cases 99 times out of 100 everyone present at an inquest is there either to promote or protect what they perceive to be a litigation interest and that could be criminal or civil uh, either of the two and perhaps even regulatory in some cases and the fact is that the coroner usually knows that although it's true that they're not really about blame or liability the fact that it's it's irrelevant all those two concepts are relevant are really is really a fiction especially if the inquest is being asked to consider bringing home a conclusion of unlawful killing, which can in truth only be returned if there is discovered to be or found to be a high degree of blame. And that has to be evaluated as part of the evidence, even if it's then ruled out. And the other point to bear in mind is that often regulators who are responsible for bringing a criminal prosecution may well be taking part. And that would include the HSE, Environmental Health, CQC, Office of Rail and Road, or or likewise, and sometimes even the police. Uh, And those individual bodies, the regulators, are almost invariably indulging in a sort of evidence gathering process in advance of a prosecution taking place. But but setting that um, perhaps slightly cynical view on one side for a moment, there are primarily as far as the rules are concerned, there are uh, four questions who are which are to be determined. That is, who died, when did they die, where did they die, and how did they come by their death, plus 
um, the medical cause of their death, the strict medical cause of their death. And usually it's, it's the how they came by their death bit that is the main focus of the inquest and the main uh, issue to which most of the contentious evidence is, is directed. It might be that the uh, identity of the deceased is unknown or that some of the other matters are uh, such as time and place are unclear, but in the vast majority of those cases, or the cases that I do, those elements are known and fairly uncontroversial. But it is the big question of how that person came by their death, which needs to be established. I think that cynical view you mentioned is probably a helpful one to mention. Um, although we talk about not being an adversarial process, I think it's probably best if businesses and organisations are aware of what can come from the inquest process and what can follow on. Um, Absolutely, and that does tend to feed in how you pre prepare for them. Part. I think a lot of people also probably imagine large-scale industrial accidents when they think of inquests, but yeah. in reality, I think quite a wide range of businesses can find themselves pulled into the inquest process. Yes, I mean, it's usually the, the really big ones that get most publicity, and I think the longest one I've done so far, setting aside the Grenfell Tower Public Inquiry, was another fire case, Lackanar House, that went on for two and a half months. But the vast majority of them are contained within a week, perhaps two weeks, perhaps three at, at the most. And the reality is that there are all sorts of ways that a business can become involved in an inquest process. The, the most straightforward ones that we deal with most of all is that an employee might have died due to an accident in the workplace. Um, a patient might have died in the hospital, a mental health patient might have taken their own life, for example, in a healthcare facility. And these issues can be can be boiled down into fairly simple um, concepts of what actually happened, um, rather than uh, necessarily anything which is grossly complex or obviously dangerous. Could be something fairly innocuous like a trip or a, or a seizure. Uh, and there is almost invariably the issue of whether or not there's a risk assessment in place for that employee and there can be motor accidents in the course of the work and, and the range is almost infinite. I've certainly done cases involving suicides in prisons and, and occasionally suicide when an employee takes their own life on the work on work premises and the whole background to that sort of thing can be allegations of workplace bullying and stress uh, because you've got that mental health duty of care in play as well. There's also potential for organisations to become involved where deaths are linked to the nature of the services being provided. And, and I include in that construction sites, demolition sites, already touched on nursing, uh, care home facilities, hospitals, prisons. But also, and this is where perhaps the unaware or, uh, uh, individual or organisation is caught out, a third party can be using machinery or even software um, in manufactured by a business that's actually not directly involved in an accident at all. It's it's well removed from it. But whatever the, the business that where the accident has taken place, if they've been using something that a third party business has provided to them, they can very easily get dragged into an inquest uh, uh, in, a, in a way that's far easier to imagine than they might uh, originally think. So if, a, if the coroner, if you are contacted by a coroner with a request for information, you want to also uh, then consider whether or not you want to be apply for what we call in the trade an interested person status 
if you haven't already been a, a, a appointed as one, rather than just providing information as a witness. Yeah, I mean, that's incredibly broad, isn't it? Some of those accidents you've mentioned are day-to-day issues, almost like slips and trips that just have catastrophic outcomes. Yeah. Um, and sadly, that sort of mental health element with workplace suicides, I think often we don't really think of. If you think about the health and safety at work, everybody thinks about health and safety, but actually they, they rarely use the, remember to use the word welfare. Absolutely, that's certainly something we've seen is that focus on mental health and duties around mental health in the workplace. Yeah. Um, that's certainly going up the agenda. You've touched though on interested person status as well, James. Could you just explain what interested person status is? So interested person is a, is a thing created by the relevant legislation and it is a, a person. It can be a person, a human being, or it can be a person in the form of a, a company, a corporate entity or a partnership. And it's someone who is entitled to participate in the inquest as opposed to being in one form or another, the provider of a witness statement or information or documents. And interested parties are identified as such by the coroner, his, him or herself. And if you are an interested party, interested person, sometimes named as PIPs, properly interested party, you as a company or an individual receive a copy of all what we call the disclosure, which is the evidential material the inquest is going to examine. You are maybe required to or can file evidence yourself. You're entitled to be legally represented at the inquest and through that lawyer or not, as the case may be, you are entitled to ask questions of witnesses and at the end of the hearing make submissions to the coroner about the potential conclusions that are open to him or her. If you're not an interested party, you can't do those things. But you need to decide fairly early on whether or not you're going to ask for that status, because just that decision as to whether or not you do ask or don't can be a delicate balance uh, between not attracting attention to yourself as a business by being an interested party uh, and, and against that, not wanting to attract attention to yourself, you equally may want to preserve your position and be in, in a position to preserve that position by taking part in that way. I mean, mm. the, the coroner has the power to identify a business or individual as an interested party, whether they want to be or not. And usually it's done on the basis that the personal business might be said to have had some role in the cause of death or might more generally attract some criticism um, as part of the evidence that's being heard. Mm-hmm. And you, if you are identified in that way, you can't stop being an interested party. You are, you are. Um, and it, it, again, it, it's it, it, if you volunteer it, sometimes it feels as if you're sticking your head above the parapet. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes that that personal business may feel that they've got more control over the proceedings mm-hmm. uh, because they're able to ask questions and 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 then they're given the opportunity to flesh out their role in the circumstances surrounding the death um, and how that might have um, related to the role that other people played in that same accident. So Mm. it's a difficult one. So if the coroner hadn't granted you interested person status, um, would you recommend applying for that rather than remaining a witness? Do you think that degree of control that interested person status grants you is beneficial? There's no hard and fast rule uh, either way. I'm more inclined to be involved if you're going to be involved rather than not. Um, 
But I think instinctively, most larger businesses, particularly PLCs, prefer to be involved at the interested party uh, level so that they have the ability to influence the outcome and have a close eye on what are sometimes regarded as reputational PR issues, because coroner's inquests often get into the press. There can be publicity. uh, And so large organisations tend to want to have their PR advisors ready and primed. And the best way of ensuring that they're aware of issues that might arise as an inquest progresses is as an interested party, because otherwise you may not be uh, aware of exactly what's going on behind the scenes. Smaller concerns, smaller businesses tend to be more inclined to stay on the sidelines and not want to invest the time and money in it if they can avoid it. But there's no, as I say, there's no, I don't think it's a particularly hard and fast rule. So say you've been contacted by the coroner, you have been asked to provide information. What does the process of being involved in inquest proceedings typically look like? So um, usually if there's been a fatal accident, there's been an investigation by either the police and or a a regulator, for example, the HSE, uh, Environmental Health, um, CQC, ORR, as we've already discussed, and they will have carried out and gathered the eyewitness evidence to the events that took place, if there is any, or more direct witness accounts of what actually occurred that led to a death. And if you're contacted as either as a person or a business, and that hasn't happened before, the chances are the first thing the coroner is going to be interested in you. Let's take, for example, a business associated with a death that has occurred either as an employer or supplier of third party equipment, whatever it may be. The coroner is usually going to be asking you for witness statements and relevant documents which relate to, in general terms, the risk management systems, the design process. If you're an employer, your supervision and your maintenance and your training, monitoring, all of those system issues within which perhaps sit the question of how a fatal accident came uh, to take place. And one of the really important early decisions to make, and I can't overstress this enough because I've become involved on many occasions late where this decision has not been um, done correctly or well enough, is to identify the person within the business, if it's a business, who is going to provide this information as a focal point. At what level is that person going to be and what role do they have? What is their experience of giving evidence in a public forum are all worth considering. Do you think because, that can be difficult, James? Sorry, in um, yeah, sure. that sometimes the what I found is that there's the sort of focus of an inquest or from the coroner can change through the course of the inquest process. And sometimes you might take evidence from somebody who at the outset you believe is the correct person to speak to what you believe are the relevant issues. And as time goes on, more relevant issues come into play that that witness you've spoken to can't actually answer the questions on? That, that's entirely uh, possible uh, and uh, reasonable in terms of what can happen. The problems arise where somebody perhaps too junior and sometimes in fairness too, too senior to have enough of a clear understanding of what the issues are, are put forward to make a witness statement on behalf of a company, for example who then get themselves into trouble in due course because they don't know enough about it or maybe have said too much uh, in the first instance without having 
considered the matter from the perspective of, as it were, the granular detail of what they're actually being asked about. It, 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 it's, so it's impossible to know how to decide who it is unless you're in the skin of a particular case. But what I'm the point I'm trying to get across is that it's really important to understand who that might be, primarily mm. because if you can, the fewer people you have involved in giving evidence and inquest on behalf of the company, the better. And so you want to try and funnel that, funnel as much information down through one person if you possibly can, rather than having a whole cohort of them up there, because the more there are, the more mistakes they can make. And that's to be avoided, obviously. Um, and as, as matters progress, and particularly to take up your point, where issues are clarified or the scope of the inquest is narrowed or changed or a different line of inquiry is undertaken. Those issues and where the inquest is heading are usually ironed out at what we call in the trade a pre-inquest review, which is an administrative hearing. Some cases happen uh, without many. Um, the ones I do tend to have lots by way of preparation in advance so that we all know what's happening at the time when the inquest is listed and they can happen weeks or months ahead of the inquest uh, and as I say are designed to try and identify the true nature of the issues between the parties so that the evidence that's then gathered can focus on those sometimes mm. called the scope. Yeah when we talk about scope that's really we mean the relevant issues in the case. Yeah so focusing back going back to that that last question how did the deceased come by their death what what were the circumstances of it I mean, you, you can argue that any number of issues that a coroner might want to uh, investigate going back over years might have some sort of causative link with the death. But most inquests, most of the time, have to have a sense of proportion about them. So you might not just focus on the single day of the accident and what only happened that day. And going back to that earlier conversation we we're having about risk assessments and so forth, the coroner may well want to evaluate and look at in the context of an industrial accident how the risk led that led to the death was managed over the previous however whatever relevant and reasonable and proportionate envelope of time he or she selects may be um, and th that's what we call scope and, and scope is entirely up to the coroner how much how far back how wide they want their inquiries to be some and there's no rhyme or reason as to how they they come to decide it's really a matter of their judgment um, and then um, one also has to consider against that background how much is controversial of the evidence that's been gathered and how much isn't. Some some witnesses come to inquest and actually give oral evidence themselves and some give evidence which can simply be read because it's not controversial but needs to be part of the inquiry. James and I had so much to discuss in our recording. We've actually made this episode into a two-parter. We've already managed to cover the purpose of an inquest, how you might find yourself caught up in proceedings, and how to prepare evidence once you are involved. Join us next time for part two, when James and I will be looking in more detail at what to expect when attending an inquest to give evidence, and the powers of the coroner. Thank you for listening.